Well, I am uh, excited to be able to introduce our speaker this morning. Um, she has been with the ladies, or many of the ladies, up at the uh, retreat this weekend. And uh, several of those ladies just came back and gave me a quick little uh, debrief on the... Uh, and I won't ask you to come up, but they're pumped. They're excited. They're eager to be back here and uh, to listen to Deb. Uh, they, in fact, um, came back energetic ready to see, take on the world, it felt like. Honestly, it was very, very encouraging. Uh, So our speaker this morning is Deb Lloyd. She uh, lives down in Portland area. She is a uh, church planter and a pastor. Uh, She's also a professor. And uh, I got to know her just a little bit uh, for a while over in Portugal. Uh, We were on a same trip together. And um, with Communitas International, I'm used to saying Christian Associates, They've switched their name, but uh, she has just uh, got a great mind as it relates to the way that God is moving in the church and what he's calling us into, and uh, I'm excited to have her share with us this morning. So if you would, as she comes, we give her a round of applause. Can I move this? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to set this down here. Good morning. I had so much fun with that wild bunch of women that y'all have. And I'm afraid I gave them permission to be even wilder. So look out. (laughs) Right? I wrote this book, Your Vocational Credo, um, because uh, all those things that um, Justin said about me are true, but when I think about myself, I don't think about, you know, my education or my job or anything like that. I think about what I'm passionate about. What am I the most passionate about? I mean, I could tell you the things that I've done, but if I say I believe God has put me on this earth to help other people find their voice so that together we can creatively and powerfully change the world. Doesn't that tell you more about me than my education? I mean, education, boring, right? But if I tell you what the passion inside my heart is, all of a sudden you get a fix on who I am and what I'm about. I want to empower other people to speak and have voice. Um, How I came to that was through a series of very painful incidences in my life. Um, I, um, before, before I was a girl Catholic, uh, and I grew up that way, and I didn't make it out of my 20s uh, without being addicted to drugs. So I was a pretty messed up kid. I was sexually abused when I was young, and that sent me on a very self-destructive trajectory. I uh, came to the Lord, I came to know the Lord through the Jesus People Movement in the late 60s, early 70s. It swept through Seattle, and it was unbelievable. I mean, I saw things that I couldn't believe my eyes were seeing. I saw people get healed right in front of me. I was like, whoa, what's that? And my response was, I messed up, I need that God. But before that happened, I remember standing on a street corner on Capitol Hill, I was super skinny, um, just almost frail, and it was pouring down rain like it often does in Seattle, 
the rain was hitting my face. And I was just standing there like this. And I thought, you know what? I really don't care if I live or die. So I took the step out into the, to the crosswalk, hoping that one of those big buses would come by and just hit me. Uh, that's how desperate I was. And then some friends came to my house and started telling me about Jesus and changed my life. Well, my mom thought I had a nervous breakdown <laughs> because I changed so fast, right? Changed my life. And the thing that I said to the Lord at that point in my, in my life was, please don't ever let me forget what it's like to be her. That girl standing on the sidewalk, hoping that the bus hits her. Please don't let me ever forget what it's like to be her. Because there was something so visceral about that pain that I knew I couldn't walk away from it entirely. It took me a long time to get my life together, as you might imagine, from a state of addiction to a functioning, a fully functioning person in the church. It took me a long time, it took years took me years to mess it up. There shouldn't have been any surprise that it took me that many years to pull it back together again. Right around the time that I was about 30 or 35, <clears throat> I started having trouble with my voice. I, um, I uh, was a fitness specialist. I was an uh, aerobics instructor. I was a weight trainer and a dancer. And I had a dance school. And uh, so I used my voice for teaching all the time. And I thought that my voice was going away because I was always shouting over the music. And so I, um, I would just shout louder. And my voice got smaller and smaller and smaller. And pretty soon it was like this. I couldn't even whisper. Couldn't get any voice out at all. And if you don't think that's debilitating, try riding in a car where you don't have a whisper, where, where, where you don't even have a whisper. The person in the car next to you can't hear you. My husband's hard of hearing from working in steel shops, and I have no voice, right? So, yay, road trip, right? We can't even talk. Uh, try going to a restaurant where the clangs of the dishes and all the other people are talking and making noise, and you can't even get a whisper out. Try uh, coming to church. Greet your neighbor. It was noisy in here, folks. Y'all love each other. I can tell that for sure. Uh, but if you you become, you become a non-person if you don't have a voice. You actually, uh, people stop trying to communicate with you after a while if you don't have a voice. So I suffered with this con condition for uh, quite a while. I lost all my jobs because I couldn't use my voice. I lost them all. Uh, and I, just, just to uh, illustrate how hard that was for me, I'm a super extrovert. And I love to talk, and I love to be around people, but my world got smaller and smaller and smaller because I didn't have any way to really communicate with people. I finally ended up going to the doctor, and if you put your head back and feel the hardest part in your throat right there, your Adam's apple, they put a needle in there and inject medicine that would give me voice for a couple of months. Um, and then it would go away. So I got to start preaching again at my church and doing some things like that. But while I ha had no voice at all, I began to notice other people. Maybe they didn't have the same voice problem that I did, but 
They weren't, they didn't have a voice in their community. Nobody listened to them. Their opinions didn't seem to matter. And I began to struggle with this whole metaphoric concept of voice. In the meantime, I find, found a voice doctor in California who was voice doctor to the stars. I mean, he treated uh, John, uh, John Kennedy Jr. He treated Lucille Ball, Whoopi Goldberg, some of those big names. And I went down and spent a week with him and got this voice back. And this voice is kind of tenuous, and sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. And please, nobody ask me to sing, okay? It's not, not a good singing voice. So, um, but then I was hooked on this idea of voice. And I began, to, um, I began to think about it and pray about it, and I began to study uh, what people have to say about voice. And um, I came to the conclusion that the sites are connected. They're connected. Voice and vocation are connected. How do I voice myself into the world? How do I do that? And that was connected to, that's a vocation question. How do I voice myself into the world? Um, so I started studying vocation and what... Uh, <clears throat> what I realized is that we have some really obsolete ideas about what vocation is. For instance, we think vocation a lot of times is our, jo is our, um, our job. And, and I like to say that um, being a nurse is not a vocation. Being an engineer, that's not a vocation either. Being pastor, that's not a vocation. Vocation is something that is, uh, comes from deep within your heart and describes what you do individually and uniquely. Viktor Frankl was a, was a guy who, uh, uh, he was a psychologist kind of guy, and he, was, he ended up in uh, the concentration camps at the end of World War II. And he uh, noticed in the concentration camps that some people prospered, not huge, not as in uh, all pink and rosy and that, but some people prospered, some people died. And he, he looked at people's uh, physical uh, presentation, and he couldn't predict who was going to live and who was going to die. You would think the skinny, frail ones would die and the more robust ones wouldn't. But what he noticed was people that had a reason for living, a strong reason for living, uh, managed to live and people who didn't died regardless of how robust their bodies were. And he um, decided that he wasn't going to waste his time in prison in, in this concentration camp. Uh, he was going to use it to study human beings. And this is the conclusion that Viktor Frankl, after that experience, came up with. Everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life. Everyone must carry out a concrete assignment that demands fulfillment. Therein he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. Thus, everyone's task is unique, as is his specific opportunity to implement it. Everybody has a unique task. That's why job descriptions don't work for vocation. That's why you don't say, yeah, I'm a tech guy, uh, as a vocational, it, it, and claim that as your vocation. Rather, what is the thing that stirs passion in your heart? What is the thing that makes you pound your fist on the table? What makes you cry? What keeps you awake at night? That is linked to your vocation. That is where you find the seeds of your vocation. So I got, 
one of the reasons I got on this path is I ended up uh, with uh, <clears throat> students who, who kept changing their majors in college. You know how expensive that is, and it's a time waster. Changing your major is, you know, give you an extra year in school sometimes, sometimes two. I had this one guy that changed his major five times. And I'm like, what if we all knew our vocation sooner and we could just get about the business of changing the world, right? So I, I began to study, how do we get to that? And I realized that for me, in my life, vocation came from the deepest, darkest times in my life. The deepest, darkest times in my life. That's where my vocation came from. That's what stirred passion in my soul. That's what made me excited to be alive and excited to live. So for vocation, um, it comes from pain. comes from a deep pain that you have, typically, or a pain that somebody else has that you observe. It, uh, it's um, something that's lived out for the sake of another person. Let me see. Where is he? Bickner. Let me find him here. Are you all aware of Bickner? Friedrich Bickner? I can't find him. Oh, there he is. I'm sorry, guys. I don't know my own book sometimes. Friedrich Buechner, he's a, a theologian, and he says the place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. So my deep gladness and a, and a pain over here in the world, those things, those things meet. This is why it's so important to know what our vocation is, because we are called, we are called as servants of God and our service is to the world. And how do we know how we're going to live that out unless we know what our vocation is? Um, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 4-7. It says, Praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer, and our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you will share in our comfort. Um, when, you, when you read the Bible and um, something is re repeated, it's like super strong emphasis. It's like if it's, if it's uh, said twice, the reader wants you to know, hey, there's a point here. Look at this. Look at this. Look at this. Did you know, notice what word came up? nine times? What word was that? What, what word came up nine times? Yeah, comfort. 
Comfort came up nine times in this scripture. And Paul is saying that when I'm afflicted, it's for your sake so that you can be comforted. So Paul's drawing a direct line between my pain and yours. My pain and yours. And when I receive the comfort of God, I'm able to share the comfort of God with you. Isn't that beautiful? I think that's so beautiful. Paul got it. He got that that, 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 that comes this way. Comfort comes this way. So we have to know where our deepest, darkest times are. We have to be able to read our story. The only way uh, that we can discover this is if we turn around and we look back at what's behind us. Our story is one of the most unique, powerful gifts that God gives us. And every story is absolutely different. So we have to look back and we have to read our story to be able to find those places where God calls us out to do something. Now, this word comfort in 2 Corinthians is par- paraclesis. Does that sound like anything you've heard before? Paraclesis. It's the same word that is used to describe the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit. Para means alongside of. Para means alongside of. Klesis uh, comes from kaleo, which most of you should probably know what that means, to call out or to be called. So this word comfort means to call, be called alongside of somebody that's in some sort of discomfort that you understand. So how does that roll out as vocation? That rolls out as vocation in the sense that, um, in the sense that, when we look back and we read our stories, we find where our pain is, and we connect that with the pain that we see in the world. One of the things that was really interesting to me is that um, after I. Uh, got my voice back, and I restarted my dance school, uh, all <laughs> the women in my dance school uh, were women that had suffered in the same way I had, with uh, sexual abuse and addictions. And we never had that conversation. We never had that conversation. They were just drawn to me because of the way that they felt comfort from me. They were just drawn to me, and that's what happens when you are functioning in your vocation. Um, when, we disconnect, when we disconnect vocation from our jobs, then we're freer to act out the way that, that God would be calling us to act out. We're much freer. I have a friend who drives Uber, and uh, this guy, um, I, I met him in an Uber cab, this guy does more pastoral counseling than anybody I've ever, any pastor I've ever met. <laughs> and we, were, we did vocational work for him. He originally drove a taxi. Now he's in Uber. I think he does Lyft, too. But uh, we did vocational work with him. And his vocational credo statement of his vocation was, um, I help 
people, um, let's see, let me see if I can get it right here. It's in here. I facilitate moments of hospitality and warmth while helping people get to where they need to go. That's his credo. Isn't that cool? And you get into his cab, and it's cozy, and it's warm, and there's nice little background music. And he said, people get into his cab and just confess. <laughs> and he just takes it in. Isn't that beautiful? If he says, yeah, I'm just a cab driver. But if he says, I facilitate moments of hospitality and warmth while helping people get to where they need to go, that could be, that could, he could do that. Elementary school teacher. I'm a teacher. People say that all the time. I'm a teacher. I say that. I'm a teacher. I'm an educator. This, uh, this gal wrote hers, and she said, I curate environments for children that inspire their imaginations and curiosity. Hello. Is that cool or what? Engineers. Are there any engineers in the crowd here? Yeah, one. Okay. This, this was an engineer. He says, uh, I solve problems by tackling tough issues that stump others. And this, this, this engineer here, tell him he can't do it, and he, he would find a way to do it. Um, lawyer, oh, lawyer, this was really interesting because nobody likes to admit to being a lawyer today. <laughs> he said, uh, I teach equality and justice and reverence for others that promotes greater love and peace in my city. And he's a, he's a, he's a criminal lawyer. He's a high-profile criminal lawyer, and he, uh, he also teaches at the community college. Pastor. There's a lot of us around that are called pastors. Uh, but if you say pastor, that doesn't really describe you. You know, that's, that's kind of a generic term. This, this pastor said, I established communities of hope and comfort and challenge that all might thrive and be loved. Isn't that beautiful? So um, there's tons of examples of, of people who have discovered what their vocation is. And um, the idea is that uh, it's something that is so core in you that it never changes. Whereas your mission statement, people a lot of times when we do this work, I say, yeah, I already wrote a mission and vision. I don't, I don't need to think about that. But in all reality, mission and vision change over the course of your life. Uh, vocation doesn't. Your why, your why in life doesn't change. A guy named Simon Sinek wrote about this in business, in, in, uh, for business. And he says that businesses that know their core why are the most successful in the world. And he, he talks about um, Apple. And, um, and he compares it with Dell computers. And he said, Dell Computers uh, said that their stated purpose was to sell technology and sell computers. That's their why. Whereas Apple uh, says, they say that they seek to give people an experience that helps them forward in, in their uh, technological needs. So they're looking at uh, two different directions to go. If, if one is to, get, is to make computers, what happens when computers change? Or what happens when the bloom is off the rose? Whereas uh, uh, Apple could take that same description, they could do a computer, 
They could do an iPad. They could do funny glasses. They could do watches. It just keeps going. So if you develop your, your core why, your core why, whatever that is, it, it's something that works for you your entire life and in all your incarnations of jobs and commitments, etc. And I think this is so important because if we don't do this, we don't know, we don't know why we're here. I remember when, when I was in high school, they had this thing called career day. Did anybody ever go to career day? I was one of the uh, geeks that showed up for career day. Everybody else skipped school on that day. But me, I, I was like, okay, I get to figure this out. And um, they, they rolled out the choices for me. And the choices back then were secretary, school teacher, um, airline stewardess. There were very, very few choices. And I thought, you know, none of that inspires my imagination. Neither could I imagine doing one thing for the rest of my life. Like, how am I going to do that? You know, I've since found out I'm sort of a serial entrepreneur. So <laughs> things change and change and change. And I kind of like it that way. And I thought about vocation in, in the way that, uh, that, um, that one might think about the plumbing for a house. You know, you need the pipes, you need the water, you need the hot water heater, but it all goes behind the walls. And you don't think about it. You don't consider it. You just let it do its job. And I, and I remember thinking, okay, that's, that, that's got to be that piece over there that does its job. I want to explore the world. I want to do something wider and broader and more beautiful. And I was so frustrated because it didn't seem like there was anything just for me. But there is. And I think Paul's, Paul's word here is particularly true. Let me read it to you again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ for your salvation. Wow, what does that mean? If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same suffering we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So then, when we come alongside of people, we become the hands of the Holy Spirit. The hands of the Holy Spirit. The place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep hunger. What is your deep gladness? What is your deep gladness? What makes you stay up at night? What keeps you awake? What makes you pound your fist on the table? What makes you cry? What do you really, really care about? There's always a person at the end of vocation. 
Matthew Ricard, the happiest man in the world. He's called the happiest man in the world. He's a Buddhist monk, and they've patterned his brain. You know, they've gone in there and looked at what happens when he meditates. And he can get to that happiness state faster than anybody else that they have studied. And he can stay there longer. And he says that vocation is always altruistic. Always altruistic. Who is it that you care most about? I care about women and men and children who have suffered the same things I have. I care about addicts. I care about abused. Those people make me cry. They make me pound my fist on the table. And the way that that's worked out in my life is that um, my husband and I, uh, I, you know, I teach and I do some other things, but um, we have uh, we have started a, a, a ministry. We, we've started three churches for our friends who live outdoors. And, um, and we just started a, a new ministry called For the Sake of Clean. And it's uh, a sponsored laundry day at the laundromat. Um, we also do uh, dinners for our friends who live outdoors. We invite them into our home. First time we did that, they said, nobody's ever invited us in their home. So now we invite them into our home. We, get, we provide them with water. We're going we're gonna, to, uh, next project is to make a shower for them. I care about these people. I, they, I, they, they're on my heart at night. The other thing that I do is something called Women's Theology Hub, and this, this is for uh, helping women to find their voice from Scripture. Men are invited too, but um, we study for women uh, so that women can know, and you'll probably hear a little bit of that from these gals over here who are at the retreat, um, uh, to help women find their voice so that they know that they weren't God's second thought. I think a lot of us were kind of taught that we were God's second thought. Um, so those are the things that I'm passionate about. I remember myself as that, as that sad girl who was addicted and in trouble and, uh, and just wanted to step in front of the bus. I remember my loss of voice uh, as somebody that wasn't heard. And so these drive what I do do a lot of other things, but these are the things that drive my heart. So I'm going to leave you with a question. What is it that drives your heart? What is it deep down inside of you that, 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 that uh, pushes you in a direction of, of service to others? What is that? When you turn around and you look back at your story, can you see it? Can you see where it lands you know, if you look at your story, you'll see the dots. You'll see the trajectory. Boom, boom, boom. This, 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 this. Then it's not that big of a stretch to figure out where the next dot is. It just goes on the line, right? So if you turn and you look back at your story, are you able to see what has brought you to the point where you are now? And if you don't know what that is, you could get my book. Or you could... Or you could meet with friends and begin to have the conversation. So, 
I hope I've left you with something that you can think about for a while, and I'm going to bounce it back to you. Thanks, Deb. We appreciate it. As you're considering what Deb said and thinking about small group and thinking about your life, I think it's significant for us to ask that question, what is your why? What motivates you to do what you do? What is stirring, as Deb asked the question, what is talk about those things a lot uh, in the internship. And part of why we bring that up is because if you could figure out at the very core of who you are, the things that motivate you and compel you to live in a particular way, it outlines the direction for everything else. And we've been talking through the book of John and going in reverse and really considering what does it mean to be the kind of people that allow the resurrection of Jesus Christ to inform everything we do. And we talked early on in that about this idea that you, at the very core of who you are, are deeply loved, that you're accepted, that you're chosen, that there weren't these crazy expectations other than to follow. And if we can begin with living out of that place and then begin to discern what is the thing that's truly motivating you, what captures your heart? I'm convinced that the outcome and the outflow of that kind of life and us being a community doing that in the city will have dramatic effect. We're going to send out a few small group questions this week, some things to think of uh, or think on based on what Deb was saying this morning. Um, I also want to encourage you that uh, one of the things you probably noticed as Deb was talking about uh, their friends that they do ministry with. They, she described them as their friends who live outdoors, right? This idea of uh, people first language, making sure that we always acknowledge the person and in them the, the image of God before we ever talk about the ways in which uh, they find themselves in society. And so I encourage you, to, as you go out into the world this week, to meet everybody and greet everybody people first to connect with them at the very core of who they are, to love them, to know them. And again, I believe that in the midst of that, that's how God changes them and us at the same time. If you would, stand with me. We're going to do a little benediction in closing. And I, as Deb was speaking, I just kept thinking of this phrase in the book of Jude. And Jude might not be one, uh, a letter that you go to, quite frequently, but uh, it's one that I, I think this doxology at the end uh, can really speak into uh, how we can live and uh, what God is doing in our lives in the midst of it. So new community, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You are dismissed. Have a great week.